Hello again. I'm back with my colleagues from Asia Pacific and from the Americas. Jim Allen from the Americas is head of advocacy and Mary Lung, head of advocacy in Asia Pacific. Um, and myself, of course, Josina Kameling, head of regulatory outreach in EMEA, to discuss, again, issues of comparability, issues of application sometimes of EU law and how it affects other regions, and a specific MIFID II. And when we look at MIFID II, today we will essentially talk about the impact of uh, investment uh, on re investment research unbundling. So when I look at this issue, essentially in the EU, this has been a really hot debate. Why? Because SMEs are at the focus of the EU. Um, as a reminder, continental Europe desperately needs to help its SMEs access to finance. There is an issue in the EU also on public markets and delisting. And when we look at what SMEs need in order to access and grow to a public capital market, what do investors look at and what do the SMEs themselves need? So CFA Institute, back already in 2013, did a survey of its members in the EU. And our members said that majority, the majority issue for SMEs is there's a lack of liquidity for their shares. Um, it's, they're very, it's very small. And this is specifically a problem in Central Eastern Europe. But it's also a problem in the Nordic region, interestingly enough. Again, all regions do mention a lack of research coverage. And this is particularly the impact of MIFID II. Economic uncertainty, that is a natural, but also different accounting standards and the quality of the financial statement. And only really very much far down in the list of importance is different listing standards compared to the main market companies. So that throws up again right away what contrasting regulation can do when you are trying to build a capital market. The EU has always functioned on a bipolar world, as I will call it, between Anglo-Saxon capital markets and continental, essentially, banking markets. In the last legislation, the EU tried to kickstart a capital markets union. Five years down the road, we have made some attempts, but they have been very sporadic and not joined up with the banking union and with Eurozone reform. This is a necessity for the next legislature, and it will be key to see how MIFID is impacting on SME access to finance. And I think that is where I am very interested to learn from my colleagues from the Americas and uh, Asia Pacific. So just as a reminder, we did a survey in the EMEA region on MIFID uh, in the beginning of 2019. It was very early on, um, but we wanted to get an initial view of where, uh, where we were going. We will be doing another survey in the beginning of 2020, so we'll be back with a podcast referring to those results, which probably will be more robust. But the initial evidence is that independent research providers have not benefited from MIFID II because there has been a squeeze and fewer sell-side analysts. So again, 57% of buy-side respondents in our survey have reported sourcing less research from investment banks than before MIFID II. 
In general, research budgets have been scaled back, with the average decrease being around 6.3%. However, it does seem that this is a tendency that had already been happening before MIFID II. So the, the jury is out on that one, I would say. Buy-side professionals mostly do believe that research quality is unchanged, but sell-side respondents are more pessimistic. Survey respondents have also expressed concerns about research coverage, with 47% of buy-side respondents and 53% of sell-side respondents reporting a decrease in the coverage of small and mid-cap stocks. There is still a belief that the research marketplace is more competitive, but again, it's a small percentage. It's only 39% compared with 25% who do believe that it is less competitive. So I think that does show that the jury is still out and that we, we cannot take over-hasty conclusions on this. And when I say over-hasty, I also say this because within the EU, there are fundamentally opposing views also within the member states. The French perspective, as um, Robert Ophel, chair and, uh, of the Autorité des Marchés Financiers, the AMF, has said, is that they do understand the aim of MIFID II, which was to eliminate the conflicts of interest that ensued from providing free research together with other broker services. However, um, it can generate undesired impacts, and they cite a reduction in research on smaller mid-caps and the concentration of research on the biggest players through internalization by large investors. So the French really do want to see a reform on this and a discussion on this, because they also cite that combined with the disproportionate application of the market abuse regulation, this really does not help mid-cap IPOs. The Financial Conduct Authority in the UK has a contrary view. And again, I think that clearly highlights the difference between a more developed Anglo-Saxon market, perhaps, and a bank market. So we do have to put that into context. The FCA, in its review, found that most buy-side firms have implemented the new rules and it has improved accountability and scrutiny about, over both research and execution costs. Most firms have indeed, as the um, AMF says, chosen to absorb research costs themselves. So larger players can do this, but smaller players can't. Most buy-side firms can still access the research they need. There was no evidence on a material reduction in research co coverage, including for SMEs. And that, again, is diametrically opposite to what was found in France. They do cite, however, that asset managers' research valuation models do have different levels of sophistication, particularly when they evaluate the quality of the research. This is something that will need to be addressed as, as time goes on. And there is also a very wide range of sell-side research pricing levels, which, again, is all part of the growing process. So this is the situation currently in the EU, and we are, as I have said, at the start of a new mandate with a new commission coming into being probably in December as the final commissioner gets appointed. This commission is focusing on SMEs. This commission is focusing on CMU, and it is focusing on retail investment. So within that context, how will the EU proceed? They are interested in seeing what is happening in the Americas and in Asia-Pacific um, because it is, again, fundamental uh, for development in, in the markets to look at what is happening elsewhere and may that help our markets. So I'm turning to Jim 
um, representing the Americas, what has the effect of MIFID II been and what lessons can the EU learn or what best practices could they possibly adopt? Well, you note how the uh, uh, Europeans are paying close attention to what the regulators in the US are, are doing. I can assure you the regulators in the US are paying close attention to what is happening here in Europe with regard to MIFID II as well. You know, of course, the big issue that came up as a consequence of MIFID II, and I remember, we, you know, we had been sort of asking the SEC about where things were going. This is dating back maybe to 2015. And then in, uh, in the autumn of 2017, the SEC came out with a series of no action letters. It was interesting because these series of no action letters covered uh, key elements of three of the foundational regulatory, financial regulatory documents on which the U.S. financial system is based. It was on the Investment Advisors Act, it was on the Exchange Act, it was on the Investment Company Act. These are very significant documents. Now, these were very narrow issues that they were talking about, but nevertheless, that they had, they felt they needed to, to do this shows the conflicts that were, that appeared as a consequence of MIFID too. Part of that is a consequence of, of institutions, the U.S. institutions that are wanting to and operating within Europe. If they're going to operate in Europe, they have to adhere to the, the MIFID rules. And they're basically saying, hey, if we're going to have to abide by these rules over here, whereby they're not allowed to, to do soft commissions, they're not allowed to do bundled brokerage, they're not allowed to accept and not allowed to accept soft commissions. They had to accept hard payments for investment research. They wanted to function that same way in the United States. And they, and, and yet in the United States, the conflict was fairly stark. If a broker dealer in the United States wanted to remain uh, regulated as a broker dealer and not as a, an investment advisor. And an investment advisor regulation is a little more, good bit more intrusive and has greater requirements uh, upon them and the, and the kinds of uh, expectations they have with regard to how they sell products to, to investors and like. But if they wanted, therefore, if they wanted to maintain their broker dealer status in the, in the United States, they had to. They could not accept hard dollars for their research. If they had to do it through soft commissions and bundled brokerage, you can see this is a rather stark conflict, right there. In uh, you know, with how th the things are functioning. So the SEC finally, and like I said, in November of 2017, had to come through with a, a series of no action letters and said, "Okay, we're not going to enforce this for." the time being. They gave them 30 months. That was supposed to uh, expire on July 3rd, July 3rd, I believe, of next year. Uh, we had put together some re a report on this, basically saying that, uh, yeah, well, okay, given what's gone on in some of the other areas with regard to regulation best interest, uh, maybe you should uh, uh, reinterpret the Advisors Act to uh, begin to allow brokers to accept hard dollars. Now, the SEC came out just this past, I think it was Monday, 
and with a with an extension of those no action letters for another three years to July 3rd of 2023. And they're looking to see how things how things fall out here in the United States, I mean, in the uh, European Union. And, you know, at the, you know, at the same time, they're trying to see how how this is having an effect in in the United States. And it has had an effect in the United States. And we'll, we'll talk about that as you as you wish. Right. So let me let me turn to Mary. What about Asia Pacific? How are you looking at the impact of MIFID II? Hello, Josina. Um, I think as we've mentioned before um, in previous podcasts, Asia Pacific is a very diverse region. Now, there's no uh, pan-Asia Pacific regulator. Each market uh, is in their own uh, stages of development. They have they each have their own set of rules. Uh, there are different, uh, huge differences between the le- le- legislative and regulatory frameworks. Um, so I think when we discuss Asia Pacific, we should bear that in mind. In terms of the effect and implications of MIFID II on Asia Pacific, especially on um, research and bundling, a lot of regulators are adopting a wait and see approach. Uh, they want to uh, be able to see and understand the effects that this piece of legislation is having uh, on the European markets before they uh, take the leap. And if you talk to most regulators, they will say that they're not for, while they are in support uh, of more transparency, um, they don't want that to be in, at the expense of less research. Most markets in Asia Pacific will allow providers to charge separately for investment and for research, and they will give that uh, latitude to the firms who operating within those markets. However, uh, there are some markets where local rules would prevent uh, providers from charging separately for investment and research. For example, Taiwan. South Korea and Japan. So there doesn't seem to be a uniform way of um, tackling it. Having said that, from some of the global firms that we've spoken to, they seem to see this uh, as a way to promote best practices. So even if in the region, regulators are not asking them to unbundle their services, some global players have decided that it's the best practice and that's what they're going to provide to all their clients. And that's something that we've seen in the United States too. Uh, those those international multinational firms. I think we did a survey of our of of uh, our members back in March, April of this year asking them about some of the changes that have come about as a consequence of of MIFID 2. And one of the more surprising results was that a third of those a third of the the uh, asset managers, a third of the the third of the asset managers are paying for paying hard dollars for their research. That's kind of interesting because they're basically you know going around. They're not doing they're not doing the uh, uh, you know buying their research directly from from the brokers, or if they are buying from the brokers, they're paying hard dollars for it. And that's that's a rather interesting development. Yes, it is. Yes, Mary. Um, I think some of the concerns with regards with regards to MIFID II um, and with regards to research on bundling uh, was a shrinkage of research, particularly on small and medium enterprises. Yes. Um, and I think in Asia, what we've observed is that there is a bifurcation between the markets that are more developed versus the markets that are still growing or developing markets. So the OECD each year publishes a report that looks at capital formation, equity, racing in the region. 
And what we've noticed is that in the top markets uh, of primary and secondary equity raising, those markets seem to have no lack of research, not even on SMEs. But for other more developed markets, such as Australia, because of the wave of consolidation in the banking and brokerages domestically, there's been a shrinkage in SME research even before MIFID II became effective in the EU. But if you look at the OECD table, the world's largest equity-raising markets were places like China and India and Korea. And in those markets, it seems that small and medium enterprises research has not really suffered. Huh. That's very interesting. And I think what, what, what another one of the foundings has been in the EU is that even for large companies, because of MIFID II, there seems to be also less coverage on their, let's say, investor calls, instead of having 25 analysts, for example, uh, covering the call, they might have 10. Is that something that maybe, Jim, you have seen uh, in the Americas? Didn't ask that question specifically, but we did ask the question, you know, for each of the, you know, for, for the different types of research providers, how much do you source compared to before MIFID two? Once again, remember, these are U.S., U.S. firms that we're talking about. And, you know, the big ones, you see the declines in uh, research from from sell side and investment banks. That's where the that's where a a significant, you know, probably the most significant declines. Very similar uh, to the EU survey, in fact. Yeah. You know, you see that it's remained about the same before and after MIFID II for third-party independent research. Uh, You probably see an increase uh, in in in-house buy side, which is probably similar to the EU as well. Back to the question of SME research that Mary was talking about just a moment ago. in In the United States, we had started to see, and you can go back, you could go back to mid 70s and and the SEC was looking at and trying to find ways to address the decline in in investment research on SMEs directly um you know i think it, you know it's been relatively stable you know you look maybe in the late 90s with the tech telecom bubble there was a, probably a resurgence in research since then it's been on the way down you know, with, with MIFID two, I think it's probably we're seeing a little bit of a you know a speeding up of that trend. Probably our biggest concern, really looking looking ahead with regard to its of the effect of MIFID two on the investment market and the research market, is that there's going to be a it's going to speed exacerbate speed up exacerbate that consolidation. Not only with research providers, but also on the investment management side, and you know the, this has some very serious implications because if you've got a limited number of research providers, then you've got a limited uh, a limited set of ideas on research. Markets are based upon that interplay of different investors with different assessments of what prices are, what they should be, where they're going, and and, and the like. And, you know, you've got already the aspect of passive investing in ETFs growing on a, that are based on indexed investing and the like. 
you throw in this aspect of a consolidation of investment firms and investment research, and you've got limited, limited opinions, you may actually start to see in the investment capital market side what you already have in the banking side, which is sort of a consolidation, a herding of approaches and a herding of, of where investment is headed. And that's not necessarily good from a systemic risk standpoint. And also, I would add to that, Jim, is what I referred to in the very beginning of this podcast, which is that um, this comes right into also the growth of private markets mm. and the increasing delisting, which leaves only very large corporates listed um, with liquidity issues, which are, are already an issue in, for example, Central Eastern Europe, but even in the Nordic region, which has a 15-year experience in five stock exchanges collaborating. So we we start to see that we might go to closing public markets to uh, challenges in transparency for investors. Mary, I I know that you also want to come in on on this. Um, So to pick up on um, Jim's point, I think he made a good point about the rise of passives and ETFs. And I can't help but wonder if there was a dichotomy between, you know, again, developing markets and developed markets, especially in terms of you know, the alpha opportunity for more liquid developed markets. And given the weighting that they are in some of the indices and ETFs, perhaps the ability to find alpha is limited. And therefore, the the value add that can potentially be provided by additional research analysts is limited. However, in developing markets, there is still a, a process of discovery. Not many investors understand these markets and, the, and that they may have a, a greater need for research and research analysts. And, and, and therefore, their value add would, um, on a relative basis, be much more. And I think we have the, the challenge. We live in a world where information is readily available, but nobody knows exactly what the quality of that information is. And that is really one of the challenges, particularly for our industry investment management. Um, So I look forward to a next podcast with the two of you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Jusina.